We are um, at the end of a series that we called or have called Reframe. And the series in part was inspired by the season of the year that we're in on the church calendar. Uh, the season of Easter is what it's literally referred to. Uh, a lot of people think there's just one day that's Easter, but in, in the church's wisdom hundreds of years ago, it decided that Easter was too large of a, a, um, a concept to commemorate in one day, so it said that for a space of eight weeks, seven weeks, including eight Sundays, we would celebrate the wake of Easter and reflect on Easter in retrospect. Whereas Lent leads us up to Easter, uh, the season of Easter, Easter time or Easter tide kind of carries us out reflectively. Uh, the space leads us up to the eighth Sunday. If Easter is the first Sunday, then the eighth Sunday is Pentecost Sunday. And you remember Pentecost Sunday is the day that we commemorate the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2. A lot of people call that the birthday of the Christian church when the disciples gathered in an upper room for seven days and finally the Holy Spirit um, fell on them. And I always... I'm always careful to remind us that the Holy Spirit fell is metaphoric. Anything that is spatial as it refers to God is metaphoric. It points, it doesn't capture. Because God transcends space and there really isn't this transactional movement from the third heavens down into our being. But if, if we really understand what's happening there in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit fell, the scripture says that it fell from heaven. Well, the book of Acts was written by the author of the book of Luke's. And Luke, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts are seen as, as a compendium. And these two volumes were written together. A lot of people believe Acts was written first. And then retrospectively the author wrote the beginning of the story, the ministry of Jesus. But their themes run together. Their grammar, their syntax, their vocabulary all run together. And, and certainly their theology does. Well, the Book of Luke has Jesus in the end talking to the Pharisees and saying, you know, you guys think the kingdom of God is over there or over here or out yonder. But Jesus said the kingdom of God is not out there. The kingdom of heaven, he called it. The kingdom of heaven is literally in you. So when you put that together and you understand that the kingdom of heaven is within you, and the Holy Spirit falls from heaven, where is the Holy Spirit falling from? The real sense there is that it's simply dropping down into consciousness. That which has always been, the image of God, the indwelling presence of God, baptizes them, and they consider it to be a transaction from outside, but it literally is an internal transaction, a reality, a, an awareness of a reality. And so from Easter to Pentecost, the point that we've really tried to make in this series is that this was a time this was a time of deep and meaningful reframe reconstructing for these people who considered themselves followers of Jesus I mean think about it they had him one way and they thought they understood who he was right Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. We believe and are sure you have the words of eternal life. 
They were absolutely sure about what he would do with his life and ministry. Even some of them, after his death, reflected back. The book of Luke 20, uh, chapter 24 says they reflected back and they said, we thought, some translations render that, we just knew. We just knew that this was the one who would redeem Israel. I mean, it made so much sense. We were looking for a Messiah, this marauding king that would come in from the desert and drop Rome to its knees. And no longer would we be this little vagabond nation that's like a rag doll torn between the empires to the south and east and west. But we would be our own people. And literally, we would be the head nation of the world and our temple would be the place that all the nations of the earth came to worship. We just knew that this was he who would redeem Israel. And even when Jesus started talking about going to Jerusalem and um, telling them that he would probably be martyred there, the Bible says that the disciples argued with him. Literally, it says that Peter rebuked him. They had Jesus in a way that was comfortable for them. They had Jesus in a way that they understood. They had Jesus in a way that made sense to them. And then they lost all of that. Not just did they lose Jesus, but their theology, their spirituality, their understanding of Israel, the world, their own lives. I mean, they had totally left their jobs to follow this guy. And almost immediately, the day he was crucified, Scripture says they went back to their nets. They just... They realized they had hitched their wagon to the wrong thing and everything they thought they knew. Judas was so forlorn about it that, that he betrayed him. He just said, I have wasted three years of my life enough already. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter was with him there when they came to abduct him. And the Bible says Peter drew his sword and just went to chopping for heads. One guy named Malchus dodged and Peter cut his ear off. And Jesus screamed, stop it! Just stop! And, and the story, it's a legendary story, is that Mal Malchus, that guy that came to abduct Jesus, is holding his head and blood's oozing down. And Jesus reaches down, picks up the ear, puts it back on his head, looks at Peter as looks at Peter and says, thank you, but no thank you. I, I don't want that kind of win. Put your sword up. This is not what we do. And Peter was so... Everybody talks about the way Peter denied the Lord because he was a chicken. Are you kidding? He's there facing 300 people, drawing a sword, going for a guy. He's ready to die. He wasn't a chicken. He was confused. Jesus looks at him and says, Stop! If you live like that, you're going to die like that. And Peter looks at him brokenhearted. It's like I just gave you a gift and you threw it in my face. Then he goes off and he denies. But he really doesn't deny because if you remember around that campfire that night when the woman looked at him and said, You're one of his, aren't you? He didn't say, No, I'm not. He said, I don't know the man. He's telling the truth. It's that sad moment, maybe years, maybe decades into a marriage, when you look at somebody and say, I don't know you. That's where he was. 
And so in that place of going back to their nets, confused, brokenhearted, everything they knew, hopes nailed to a cross, dreams buried in a tomb, theology decimated, understanding of spirituality gone, numb, totally deconstructed. They go back to their nets. They go back to their life. And all of a sudden, two days into that, Easter happens, and not on a grand scale. It's amazing to me. My God, to, to, to grow into the spirituality of Jesus is going to take more than 2,000 years. When I think about the way he did it, you know, in the story, the crucifixion is the great demise. It's the great shame. It's the great humiliation. And he does that in the open air with all the cameras rolling. All the naysayers, the betrayers, the deniers, everybody's watching on the day he's crucified. And then the story is that he gets up out of a grave and nobody's there. It's so not the way we would do our press conferences, is it? But word gets out that they begin meeting Jesus. The first person to meet Jesus, or the first people to meet Jesus, we've talked about often, were a group of women, three women, at least three women, one of them, Mary Magdalene, who's a real hero in the story of Scripture, though we haven't always recognized her. Jesus even said of Mary, when you preach the gospel, preach about her, the way she had anointed his feet. But she went to the tomb, and she met the resurrected Christ. She met the resurrected Christ, and shortly after that, she ran to the disciples, the male disciples, and she told them that she had met the resurrected Christ, and the Bible said they absolutely did not believe her. They thought she was telling a silly story. And, you know, there's probably misogyny and patriarchy in that. I don't think that's a bitter looking for that. I think, I think it's very clear that they just didn't trust her because she was a woman. I don't know that they didn't trust her because she was a woman or they just could not imagine that if Jesus was going to appear, he would appear to anybody but them. I, surely, you know, just maybe it wasn't that she was inferior, maybe it was that they were superior. You know, he couldn't have, and maybe that's the same thing, huh? And then Peter says that the Lord had also appeared to him. And, and this, is, this is what I wanted to say. Jesus just starts appearing, physical, metaphysical. I don't know that we'll ever figure all of that out, but in, in the story, this powerful story, Jesus starts appearing. And in fits and starts, there are seven or eight appearances of Jesus that are mentioned, and we talk a lot about the appearances of Jesus, but there's something, and, and there's a reason I say in fits and starts, they begin experiencing him. Because it's a mistake to say that he came back in a way that was clean and clear and a perfect restoration of what he had been. He didn't at all. He, he didn't come back, reboot them and say, gone two days, back, let's get it back together and do exactly what we were doing. He came back and he was different. I don't, I don't know how radically different he was, but it was different. 
as soon as they saw him, it was like, how do we get this dog and pony show going again? Let's get the multitudes to him. One more miracle. Break some bread. Tell a story. Give us another sermon on the mount. But he does something uncanny in this season. And it's a shift for us that I don't know that we've made in the first 2,000 years. He sets another template. And it's not the template of buying buildings and setting up camp and gathering lots of people and turning all the cameras on. It's a completely different spirituality. Because that season between Easter and Pentecost when he began appearing, Scripture is just as clear that not only did he appear several times, but he also was very careful to disappear. His disappearances, to me, are almost, if not more compelling than his appearances. The first one was Mary Magdalene. She sees him, she loves him, she wraps her arms around him. I often mention it, and as she wraps her arms around him, he says, let me go. Don't hold me. I mean, she's already got it figured out how we're going to put this thing back together. I've lost you once. I'm never losing you again. And he uncurls her fingers and says, do not hold me. Here's the new rule. If the crucifixion didn't get it through to you, don't let the resurrection confuse you. Do not cling to me. The next group of people who met him were the Emmaus-bound disciples. They walked with him all day long brought him into their home thinking he was just a stranger. Their eyes were fixed where they couldn't see who it was. And then they fed him a meal, and when he took a piece of bread and broke it, the breaking of bread stirred their memory, and they looked at him, and the Bible said immediately they recognized it was Jesus. And I know as soon as they recognized it was Jesus, they had to just start immediately saying, this is what we're going to do. This is going to be greater than ever. And you know what the Bible says he did? Disappeared. And we don't like to think about that. We like the appearing part, but we don't like the disappearing part. He does that a couple of more times, and the coup de grace is when he tells them to meet. He, after several disappearances, they all get the message that they're supposed to meet him at a mount called Olive. And they go out to that Olivet Mountain, and when they get there, he gives them this great commission about all the stuff they're going to do and how great it's going to be. And the Bible says that they begin to worship him, which is exactly what he didn't want them to do. They begin to venerate him. It's kind of like Peter at the Transfigurative Mount. Peter's like, let's build some statues here. Let's build a temple here. And Jesus is like, you've missed the point. You've missed the whole point. Three temples, statues, veneration. They do it again at, at this moment at the Mount of Olives. And as they begin worshiping him, he doesn't sit down and lean back like a grand narcissist and say, sing that to me one more time. That made a good song in the 70s, wouldn't it? No, do that to me one more time. <laughs> Once is never. No, that, that's not... That's not in our hymn book, is it? He doesn't do that. Stephen, as they begin worshiping him, he just disappears again. And they're standing there transfixed on the disappearing one. 
And the angels show up and say, why are you standing here gazing? Why are you transfixed? Why are you ever trying to hold him? To dig your fingers into some flesh, some idol, some statue, some religious practice, some temple. Why are you ever trying to do that to him? Did you ever get a sense that he was trying to start something like that? You remember the night before he left us and was crucified, he looked at you and said, Hey, long before I was here in flesh, my father was with you and my father is greater than I. And then he looked at you and said, and greater works than these will you do because I leave you and go back to the Father, back to the Spirit, back to something that's not so physical that you got to hold it and have it and venerate it. I go back to the Father. You'll call that the Holy Spirit, but it's really the presence of me. And when you really get that idea of union, you'll do greater works than I do. Let me go. Let me go and find yourself. That's what he said. That's heresy to some people. It was the ministry of Jesus. It was the total ministry of Jesus. Let go of me and find yourself. No wonder Paul looked and said, Oh my goodness, now we're the body of Christ. <laughs> Christ in us, the hope of glory. When a life is lived as well as Jesus or King or Gandhi or Parks, when a life is lived as well, as Dorothy Day, Steve, we read her book, changed all of our lives. When a life has lived that well, it does two things to us. It makes us feel like we could never be quite that. And so we cop out by worshiping that life, building statues and religions around it. The essence of the Christian religion so far has been clinging to Jesus, and yet the essence of Jesus' spirituality was, please let me go. Let me go and become me. Let me go and recognize the Christ in you. Stand in my stead. Greater works than these shall you do. He even tried to explain that to Mary when he looked down into her forlorn eyes, filled with peace because now she had him back. And he said, well, this is the way it's going to be now. Don't hold on to me. Don't cling to me. Why? Well, he explained. He said, don't cling to me. Now listen, this is hard for some to hear, but it's what he said. And I think it's taken us a couple of thousand years to really grow ears for this. But he said, don't hold on to me, Mary, because I haven't yet ascended. In other words, Jesus looked at her on the other side of a miraculous birth, on the other side of a miraculous life, on the other side of a profound death, on the other side of a miraculous resurrection. That's our story. On the other side of all of that, Jesus looked at her and said, don't hold on to me here. I'm still in process. Wow. Think about it. Don't hold on to me because I, yet, I have not yet ascended to my Father. And, and really... Don't build a religion around an ascending Jesus. And that would be easy to do. Somebody does miracles and then raises from the dead and floats in the air. You could build a case that that's something really special. And you could build a whole religion on what we all need to do one day is ascend in the air and go to heaven too. I think that's happened. 
I've heard of a religion like that. Don't do an ascending Jesus going to heaven religion either. Because once I get there, I mean, the process continued. Something powerful happened there. And then the Spirit comes. And so maybe that's where. Acts 2, let's be Pentecostals. And it's all about the outpouring of the Spirit. And we speak in tongues. And nothing else happens for the next 2,000 years except we just get fixed in one phase of Jesus. Maybe Jesus never wanted to be an orthodoxy. Maybe, maybe Jesus never wanted to be a definitive statement and a final creed. Maybe Jesus only and ever wanted to be the unfolding, unending narrative of the mystery of God revealed that is never exhaustible by a birth, a life, a miracle, a death, a burial, a resurrection, a transfiguration, an ascension, an outpouring of the Spirit, an inclusion of the Gentiles. Maybe if we really look at this slow grinding process of church history, we could give all of the credit to the great changes the good changes that we have made through these 2,000 years, maybe we could just say it's because ever and again we are, we are capable of seeing Jesus, God, spirituality in a new light. Through the face of Jesus we see, after 1,900 years, through the face of Jesus, we can see a slave as our brother. After... 1900 years we can see a woman as something other than an object after 1900 years 2000 years maybe the essence of the reason we've changed through the years in our Christian spirituality is because we finally little by little recognize that Jesus is the ever unfolding mystery of God revealed and maybe the reason we've been so recalcitrant and stuck in so many of our wineskins is because in missing that, we are always and ever trying to defend a fixed position. A stage of Jesus that we loved and we liked. And yet, the message of Jesus even after the resurrection was, why would you hold on to me here? I haven't even got where I'm going yet. And if Jesus was slain from the foundation of the world, and if Jesus was in the beginning with God and was God as the plan of God, and the Word was with God, and then the Word was made flesh, why would we think from eternity past up to 2,000 years ago, the Word, Jesus, was ever unfolding, and then after an eternity of unfolding, He would stop and fix Himself and say, done. There's nothing about that that makes sense. And so I, I think the most underrated Je words Jesus ever spoke were, let go of me. Don't hold me here. A post-resurrection Jesus is wonderful. A resurrected or an unresurrected martyr for many can start a movement. Somebody who walks on water and raises the dead, it's a wonderful place. Somebody who can wax so eloquent that it stops the mouth of the wise and liberates the hearts and souls of those that are desperately burdened. I mean, every phase of him. There, 
Wise men came from afar and knelt down and worshipped him when he was a baby because it was so illustrious. But the essence of immature religion is fixing and holding our objects, our leaders as objects of devotion as opposed to following them fluently into a future more vast than we could ever imagine. I want to bring up a, a friend of mine, Dave Warnock. Dave, come on up with me, and I just want to talk to him a little bit here. I think you'll understand in a moment why. So that's what Reframe has been about the last six or seven weeks, and it really is the essence. Have a seat, Dave. It's the essence of what we're trying to do here at Grace Point. Um, Hello. Yon. I thought the chairs would be more comfortable. Yep, sit down. Okay. Be quiet, I'm not done. Okay, go ahead. Um, so Dave's one of my good friends. I wanted to bring Dave up because I want to say this about Reframe. Everything I just said we've been talking about, it's a mind stretcher for some, but I think it's really beautiful. I think we all intuit that that's the case. But last thing I want to say to you about Reframe is Mary Magdalene was the one that Jesus said those inimitable words of let me go. Be open to an unfolding Jesus. Brokenhearted, she let him go, and he left her. Mary Magdalene, and this is really important for a lot of us deconstructed folks, Mary Magdalene met the risen Jesus. Not because she expected to meet the risen Jesus, because she was doing something deeply spiritual something that I really want to recommend to all of us when Judas figured out that Jesus wasn't what he wanted he betrayed him when Peter figured out that Jesus wasn't what he wanted he denied him when Thomas figured out what, that he wasn't what he wanted he left, didn't meet the risen Christ and doubted all of them went back to their life and said, but one woman. And she woke up on Saturday morning, Rachel. She woke up on Saturday morning and she said, my heart's broke. I am more disappointed and devastated than words can speak. Everything I thought Jesus was, he's not. But I loved him. And he loved me. And as bad as it has turned out, there was good there. And while all of his other disciples, when they didn't get him the way they wanted him, left him in a grave, she said, I'm going to take care bury the Jesus I've lost because he may not have turned out to be who I thought he was going to be but he doesn't deserve to stink and she took burial spices and what I want to say to all of us because there's a real tendency in the deconstructed phase to get bitter and to cast dispersions and say oh all of that was just crazy what were we I don't want to ever think about church again. They just screwed my mind up. 
and, and just get negative and bitter and go back to your nets. But I'm telling you, good spirituality is to keep your heart open, Roy. And say, it may not have been perfect back there. But there was good there. And I may not understand the songs anymore, and the theology may not make sense, but there was good there. And so I'm going to take those flannel graphs and that little Pentecostal church and the scared little boy at five years old who knew probably that I was going to burn forever because I could never be good enough. All of that, I could get bitter about it and just be a deconstructed agnostic the rest of my life. Or I could remember the good and go back to the place where he was buried and say, I may not believe in a resurrection, but I don't want this to stink. And as she took care of a dead Jesus, as she took care of her dead Jesus, guess who came alive to her? And so I would encourage us as we are all moving and open to keep our hearts right. I suppose to keep our hearts open because I personally believe in an ever unfolding revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ and I think the best way to find that ever unfolding revelation is to not stand on my tiptoes, read a new book and look for the new thing but it's to tend decently and honorably to that which I've had. Does that make sense? And to keep my heart right and open. And I bet if you keep your heart right, grateful and open to what you've had, what you're going to have may be born right out of the midst of that. When you least expect it. Dave is my friend who was a pastor for a long time in this area, a successful pastor in this area, Pentecostal Charismatic Church. And Dave lost faith in the Jesus that he had known. Wife, kids, grandkids, he did this in his 50s, and he deconstructed so far that I didn't know him at that time, but in that place of agnosticism, atheism, Dave introduced me to a side of my own heart that I didn't admit was there. He found me because he knew some of the things we were doing at Grace Point and he said I don't believe all of that but I'm interested in that and a few years ago he and I became fast friends and I found out that that agnostics and atheists even former Christian pastor agnostics, agnostics and atheists aren't bad people they're actually really many of them good people and he and I began having some of the most invigorating, honest conversations I've ever had in my life. And for whatever reason, he can tell his story more. This guy did not flip the whole thing off. He has hung around the tomb. And he has dealt gently with his own soul and the Jesus that he lost. A few weeks ago... I walked in here. He still comes to church because this is all a part of his culture and sociology. And he was standing over there. And I said, hey, I hadn't seen you in a while. And he said something to the tune of something has happened to me and I got it back. And before everybody applauds, it, it's maybe not what you think. 
But it's amazing what happens to people when they hang around the tomb and they deal honorably. And I have so appreciated that, and it's made me even be more honest. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but I just wanted to introduce him as best I can. So does stuff make sense to you? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, that's a good way to put it. I hung around. Um, and we have had some invigorating conversations. I don't, I don't know what to label myself. You know, I don't like labels. Um, I, don't, I don't like the word atheist because that's got a lot of baggage with it, as does the label Christian. So I'm just a guy trying to figure it out and um, trying to be honest with myself and with other people. But Stan's right, you know, I, uh, I, did, I did completely uh, lose faith in, in Jesus, the God that I knew, uh, after 35 years of wholeheartedly, devotedly uh, pursuing that. And when you, when you do that, when, when you come to the end of that and you realize, I, I got nothing here, then it, it, it can make you angry. I was angry. I was angry. I felt like I'd been cheated and fooled and given the best years of my life to something that wasn't true. But I, I, I know now that I was just doing the best I could, just like we all are, trying to figure it out. Um, so when Stan and I began to talk, and, and we've had some good, good conversations about all the above, um, I had truly, uh, and this was um, just to give you some context, you know, about seven years ago, when, when this began to deconstruct for me. And it was a process of two to three years. It wasn't uh, one morning I woke up and said, okay, I'm done. You know, it's, it's, it's a process. It's a long, arduous, difficult process to re-examine that which you've believed for your whole life. And, and, it's, and it's difficult. Um, it's, it's like a combination of a death and a divorce all at once. So it's earth-shattering to me to come to the end of that. It's not a light thing at all. And so, in the midst of that though, I had to kind of figure out what do I do now? And as Stan was saying, I could either get angry and rail against everything and become an angry atheist or an angry agnostic or an angry something. Um, but I didn't, find, I didn't find much redemptive value in that anger. So. I quickly ran through that phase and thought, you know what, I better find something better than this. And so I just began to re-examine myself and what I wanted my life to look like. And I happened upon um, some people who were doing some um, mission work in Nicaragua. And um, Nicaragua is not significant in, in, in other than the fact that it's the second poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. And 60% of the people live on $2 a day. Um, you know, that means something to you. Then take that to the bank. But I, I just found a place to go to that I could get out of myself. And you've all, I'm sure, I shouldn't say that. Many of you probably have done mission work and gone to foreign countries and third world countries, developing nations where people don't have anything. But what I found uh, was an ability to sink my teeth into something that was going to give me some value and some meaning. And when I saw Stan over here that, that morning after I had... Um, and I used to, you know, I would just kind of come and hang around the, the back like a coyote outside the yard, you know, just kind of, 
If somebody looked at me too quick, I would dash out the door. But I, I didn't know what I was here for. I just, I like Stan. He's a good guy. Um, and let me say this about this guy. Um, I knew I couldn't get through this without crying. I have a great deal of respect for him. Uh, as much as any man I know. Because it's easy to follow your convictions when it doesn't cost anything. But when it costs you a lot, when it costs you everything, and you are only doing it because something here says you have to, I respect that. So I don't know if I've told you that, but Thank you. I respect it. And um, I, I've, I've kind of suffered that same thing. It's me following the convictions of my heart, being honest with myself about my faith has cost me a lot. Um, relationship with family members, um, a lot, a lot. Friends who won't associate with me anymore because I don't believe the right things. Because I don't believe the right things. I don't understand that. <laughs> but that's what many people's faith hinges upon, what you believe. So what my new spirituality, my new religion, my new faith, I don't care what you call it, my new God, I don't care, you can call it that, is that I've found a way to embrace something that matters right now, in the here and now. When I can go to Nicaragua and I can spend $20 at a market and take food to a widow and three women, three kids who don't have food to eat. They've got enough food for two days. If someone doesn't give them something, they will be out of food in two days. And I can spend $20 at a market and buy them enough rice and beans and eggs and oil to last three weeks. I can get behind that kind of spirituality, if you want to call it that. Religion, if you want to call it that. When we can build a house for $15,000 for this widow who is living on a dirt floor with a roof that leaks when it rains with three kids, two of them by a man who's in prison, the third one by a man who's dead. And we can do something meaningful to her so that her kids will have somewhat of an option in this life. Because they were just simply unlucky enough to be born in the wrong country. That's what it boils down to. They just weren't lucky enough to be born in America with all the options we have. So that's what I meant when I saw Stan that, that morning. I said, man, I've turned a corner. Because up until then... I was hoping for a little more than that, but it's a good place to start. I'm just kidding. That's all I got. <laughs> that's the old answer. Yeah, I know, right? You want me to pray a prayer? Yeah. Okay. Can you lay hands on me? You know, if the Spirit comes over me, I, I'll say anything, and I'm not responsible for what I say, so... No, I don't... Um, that's not right. Not right and at all. yet... And yeah, yet we were standing back there last week at the music service, and we're standing back there listening to a song, and you look over at me standing back there, because you're still not a big sitter in church. I know. You look at me, big tears in his eyes. Shut He's up, like, man. Don't tell me. I know, but it's come the on. truth. What I'm saying... This is what... It Wait. was Rise Up, and that song rocked, right? Yeah, it rocked enough to rock tears out of your eyes. Because all I'm saying is, we've been inclusive, and we have Jewish people speak, and Muslim people speak, and 
we're known for inclusion. I, I think if we really mean inclusion, I can do a spiritual journey with people like this. And I can do a spiritual journey with people like this. And I don't... <clears throat> with all my heart. Because it's, it's stuff that matters. And when I told Stan last week, I said, you're doing something really important here. Because he's including people. And so much of Christianity is exclusive. It divides. It separates. It says, I'm in and you're out. I'm right and you're wrong. I hate that. Do you all mind if we let people... Do you mind if we let people who don't believe and aren't looking for a risen Christ, but they want and they find meaning around the tomb of Jesus and the presence of Jesus? Do you mind? We include people like this. This is a spiritual journey, and I'm telling you, a lot of you clean up good. There's 30% of you that are sitting here thinking, I'm about that far from what he's describing. So let us all be honest. This is a community. These are the people who surrounded Jesus. We are these people. So I think I have a few more metaphysical beliefs than Dave does. But Dave is near the tomb of Jesus feeding hungry children in Nicaragua. And the last time I checked, the people who met the risen Christ were simply there doing decent things for other human beings. So, <coughs> so to that end, to that end, this is an interesting question. I don't mean to put you on the spot. Do you take communion anymore? Um, no. I, I, well, I, I eat crackers when I, I have soup. <laughs> Does that count? Here's the deal. And I drink wine. I mean this with all my heart, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot. If we don't treat this like some kind of paranormal theological creedal thing, but we treat it the way it is, communion is supposed to be the Lord's table. Would you be willing to sit at the Lord's table with me? I'd love to take communion with you. Sure, I'd love to. Then let's receive the Lord's Supper, those who are reading. And I heard here while back somebody, one of my, one of my uh, evangelical friends say, that they didn't let certain people take communion because they fenced the Lord's table. Steve, they fenced the Lord's table. I said, come again. Roy, it was your folk. They <laughs> fenced. Got booted for baptizing in the wrong place. They fenced the Lord's table. I thought, what have we done, Tanya? to take the table of the Lord where everybody sat and the religious folks said, why do you eat with people like that? And we turned it into this religious handshake that only the, the elite can get. I'm telling you, if there's a hell, it's for that mentality. It's not for the ones on the outside. It's for the ones on the inside keeping everybody out. And I don't think that's a burning fire. I think it's a hell in itself. And I'm glad to be released from it. And I'm glad to be at the Lord's table with people like you today. Amen? Amen. <laughs> we open our hearts now. And we receive 
We receive the Lord. We receive the invitation of Jesus at this table. Amen. Receive the elements, hold them, and we'll take them together in just a moment. that I can still be at the table called the Lord's and something called Christianity is because my brother Dave gets to be there too. And I'm just telling you, if you weren't invited to the Lord's table, I don't think I'd go. I appreciate that. But the last time I checked, the Lord invites everybody to the table. So to that end, I'm thankful to still call myself Christian. You call it something different these days, but you are, after a few years of friendship, more like Jesus than 
most people I know, and I'd call you a fine Christian whether you receive it or not. <laughs> but that's just for me more than him. That's fine. He took a piece of bread and he said, don't forget me. And I don't think any of us can. There's a bunch of forgettable stuff in Christianity. There's very little about Jesus that's forgettable. And so we break this bread and we remember him. And he lifted a cup and he said, my life is yours. And I don't think we understood fully what he meant when he said, my life is yours. But I, I do feel, I don't feel like a five-year-old child under a fountain of blood being cleansed from all the dirty things I've done as much as I feel that this is my blood. And it was first his. And it's the kids in Nicaragua who live on the trash heap. This is their blood. And that's the table of the Lord. And I understand that. And he said, when you do this, remember me. Let's remember him now. And our hearts are full of gratitude. And our minds are more open. And our souls are up for transformation. We are grateful, God, that you transcend labels. And you are mystery, presence, so deeply with us that it is more than in us. May we all grow into the recognition of the great union, the inseparable union of creator and creation. We are grateful to be a part of that today. We receive all of this now. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you thank Dave Warnock for being brave enough to be on a Christian stage today?